From the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, beginning with verse 27, hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Author Neil Postma, in his book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, wrote about the influence of TV and culture and TV preachers and things like that. And he had this to say. He said, The most modern methods of marketing and promotion are abundantly used by TV preachers. The preachers are forthright about how they control the content of their preaching in order to maximize their ratings. You shall wait very long, a long time indeed, if you wish to hear an electronic preacher refer to the difficulties of a rich man gaining entrance into heaven. Postman concluded by saying, I believe I'm not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it's another kind of religion altogether. It seems to me, too, that a number of Christians today feel that their faith is more amusing than demanding and serious. Postman offers a good critique and challenge for Christians of many stripes today who would be tempted to follow the easy, amusing, or comforting way, or comfortable way, a way that avoids, ignores, and denies the suffering and pain that come along with real life and with the discipline of being a true disciple or follower of Jesus. 
self-denial, self-discipline has fallen on hard times today, unless you maybe you're an athlete. Well, in today's reading, the close inner circle of the disciples are taken to the far northern part of Israel called Caesarea Philippi, near what is today called the Golan Heights, near Lebanon. And from there, they look down over Galilee, or toward Galilee, the region where Jesus and his disciples have been doing ministry for a while. So it's kind of a reflection moment, a reflection point, as they think about the things that have just taken place with Jesus and the ministry that's happened there. But also, maybe metaphorically, they're looking south down toward uh, Jerusalem, all the way down south there. For Mark, Mark's gospel takes a big turn here, and the focus from here on out will be Jerusalem and the cross. At this turning point and reflection moment, that inner circle of disciples are asked again if they would follow Jesus. And Jesus takes this moment to explain both who he is as the Messiah and what kind of followers he's looking for. First, though, they need to have some clarity about who Jesus is and who the Messiah is. So while on the way, it says, and Mark loves to use that phrase, while on the way, um, Jesus had just healed this blind man that we didn't read about, beginning back in verse 22 uh, of our chapter, the chapter before, or this chapter, verse 22. Jesus just healed that blind man in Bethsaida. But he had to touch him twice, it says. It's like Jesus having to ask his disciples again for the second time to follow him. At first, the blind man could only see what looked like tree stumps walking around. He couldn't see very clearly. So Jesus had to touch him again to heal him so that he could see clearly. His eyesight would be corrected. And now, in our passage, Jesus is going to correct the spiritual eyesight of his disciples so that they could see Jesus for who he really is and not as they would have him be. In verse 27 of chapter 8, it says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Who do people say I am? It's an interesting place to ask such a question. This place is, the, the, this, this place is first of all, known as uh, the place where the cult for the nature god Pan was highly worshipped and celebrated there. Um, It's also named after a Roman emperor, Caesar, who is also worshipped. Today we might call Caesarea Philippi Caesarville, something like that. But it's a constant reminder to the Jews of who's really in control, who's in charge. You know, and they name cities after their their emperors. So here in a far-off post on the edge of the promised land with pagan symbols all around, with a city sign that points to the political savior and ruler, here in this place, on the way, Jesus asks his followers, who do people say I am? Am I your political savior? Is that what you think of me? Well, they replied in verse 28, saying, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. In other words, Jesus, the news on the street is good. The press is good. Um, The the polls indicate that people see you as some kind of prophet of the highest regard, and and that's got to be good. We couldn't get better press than that. But what about you, Jesus asks? Who do you say I am? Like a young child in a children's message, a sermon, 
Peter steps up and raises his hand. Ooh, 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 pick me, pick me. I know, I know. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Jesus is the answer, right? And in another gospel elsewhere, Peter is commended for this. He's praised for his answer, but not here in Mark. No, here, Jesus just tells them all to be quiet about that. Because just giving Jesus a name or a title doesn't mean that you get him. doesn't mean that you understand him. And they certainly don't get to define him by their own perceptions of what they think the Messiah ought to be. Their understanding of the Christ is a little off, and Jesus knows this. The disciples are only seeing tree stumps walking around, so to speak, like, they're, like the blind man from Bethsaida. They are, only the, they are only beginning to see who Jesus is and what he came to do, and there's still much more that they cannot see yet. Where Jesus warns the disciples not to say anything, he actually uses the word rebuke. And rebuke is the same word that is used to, uh, that Jesus used to rebuke the winds and the waves. And it's the same word where Jesus rebukes the demons. It's the same word Jesus uses to rebuke Peter in verse 33. There are actually two rebukes here in this passage, just as there are two attempts to heal the blind men in Bethsaida. Jesus is trying to get his followers to see just who he is as the Christ. He's trying to heal their blindness and get them to contemplate the cross along with a life of discipleship that includes things like self-denial instead of self-promotion. So Peter seems to get it right, doesn't he? Got the right answer. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. But the plan of Jesus and his upcoming journey is not going to look anything like what they've been conditioned to expect the Messiah to be, what they've grown up hearing about. Lofty visions of majesty fill their eyes. The noise of the crowds fill their ears so that they don't really get the Messiah, that the Messiah must suffer and die until he does. Being the Messiah means suffering, death, and sacrifice, and they're not getting it. Peter is the first one to stumble over the cross. Later, the disciples argue over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And then there's, there's that incident where James and John, along with Mom, are trying to jockey for position when Jesus gets into glory, right? Who's going to sit at your right hand, Jesus, and your left? Can we be the ones? No, near the end of Mark's gospel, it's really just the Roman centurion who gets Jesus before even the disciples do. As Jesus died on the cross, it was the centurion who said, surely this is the Son of God. After the death on the cross, he got it. After the suffering, he got it. After the rejection, he got it. The Roman centurion got it. Surely this is the Son of God, the one who died on the cross. Who is Jesus? A social liberator? A revolutionary? A nonviolent good teacher? Reformer? A peasant leader? A wandering cynic? Who is this man? Although there are many aspects of these titles that could be, uh, could be applied, uh, but they all fall short. 
For any one of the titles that modern liberal scholars would give to Jesus distracts from the actual religious claims of Jesus himself, who came to save us from our sins by his death and resurrection. Being the Messiah means suffering death and resurrection. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And he goes on to define who the Christ is on his own terms. He also teaches us what it means to follow after him as a disciple. So next, Jesus defines what the Messiah means. You see, it's never good to allow other people to define you and what you are all about. When it comes down to it, no one else really knows you or knows you to the core like you know yourself. But even well-meaning friends will try to do it. They'll try to tell you what you should do and what you should be all about. And and Peter was one of those well-meaning friends and and a disciple who thought he he knew the right way for Jesus. He was going to correct Jesus and tell Jesus what, what he should be all about. He didn't like all of that discipline and and suffering and death talk that Jesus was doing. It didn't fit his paradigm of a Messiah, neither did it fit his idea of what a disciple should be or what he wanted to do as be as a disciple. Uh, no, the disciples were looking for a spot in the West Wing, maybe, as they were looking for those positions of power and authority. You know, when Jesus comes into his you know, full power, they wanted to get some of those positions. Messiah was going to liberate them from the Romans and destroy their enemies, and it was going to be glorious. Surely the disciples would get those cabinet positions one day. But Jesus often turned down those positions of human power and authority. He didn't exploit that. In fact, he will submit to human authority all the way to the cross. It says in verse 31 that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. It says he spoke plainly about these things. No riddles, no parables, no word pictures. Be quiet about me being the Messiah, he says, but know what being the Messiah means. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected and killed and rise again. Of course, Jesus spoke plainly about the victory stuff too, but it seems like the disciples were kind of missing that because they were distracted by the whole suffering part. So being a sort of leader among the disciples and one who got the answer right, Jesus, Peter, stands up, puts his arm around him, takes him aside, and says Peter began to rebuke Jesus. Peter, the disciple, and to rebuke Jesus. Verse 32, it says he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Took, the words took and rebuke are, are verbs that make it sound like Peter thinks himself a little superior to Jesus, at least at this point. Taking someone aside to rebuke them or correct them is something you might do with a, uh, as a boss or as a parent, taking your child aside after they've thrown the mashed potatoes against the wall, right? You're taking somebody aside to correct them. Come now, Jesus, there's got to be another way here. Ah, Remember the temptation of Satan in the desert. There's got to be another way. You have to believe in yourself, Jesus. Be confident. Have positive and hopeful message. People aren't going to vote for you if you continue this message of suffering and death. You have to give them what they want to hear. Peter needs to be touched again. 
before he can truly see Jesus for who he is and what he came to do. So then something interesting happens. It says in verse 33 that Jesus turns around and he looks at his disciples. A lot of ink has been spilled over this of why Jesus is uh, turning around and looking at his disciples at this moment. Did Jesus know that the other disciples were kind of thinking the same thing and were equally as clueless about the mission of the Christ? So he turned around and looked at them too. Or, or was Peter walking in front of Jesus or alongside of Jesus instead of behind him? The disciples of a rabbi walk behind the rabbi, not in front of them, not alongside of them, not equal to them. So Jesus turns and rebukes Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. God's ways and thoughts are higher than any prospect of human power and authority over this small chunk of desert land in Palestine. And the way of the Christ, the way of the Messiah, will be the way of the cross, the way of suffering, the way of death. You better get that straight, Peter. And all the rest of you, too. You need to know what it means to be a disciple. It certainly doesn't mean you get to define the Messiah however you wish to. And you don't get to control him or rebuke him as if you were his caretaker or puppet master. Jesus has spoken plainly about this. He knows his mission. He knows his, the call of God on his life. And he knows the temptation of Satan to follow the easy path, the broad road, the way of amusement and self-indulgence. The road to self-promotion, worldly power, and power-grabbing, establishing kingdoms here on this earth. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, temptation. That's not who I am. Jesus defines who he is. He defines what Messiah means. So next, Jesus goes on to teach the disciples and the crowd that if they would follow him, they must, too, embrace the way of the cross. This is the way to Jerusalem, the way of discipleship. We're going to Golgotha. Jesus requires his disciples to embrace the way of the cross. So take a look at verse 34. Then he, Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Discipleship is a demanding and serious business. The three demands that Jesus lays out for us right here in verse 34 of chapter 8 is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. A true disciple must do more than just get the title right, like Peter did, and have the right answers. Or make a confession of faith. Following Jesus on the way to Jerusalem means embracing the cross of suffering and death that come with life accepting the painful with the pleasant, the good with the bad. True disciples must do more than just survey the wondrous cross or glory in the cross of Christ or even just love that old rugged cross. A true follower of Jesus, a disciple, must become like Jesus in living the way of the cross, that way of self-sacrifice. And notice, too, how the invitation is opened up here. Jesus called the crowd along with the disciples for this invitation, maybe this second invitation to come and follow me. But this time Jesus is saying, come and follow me to the cross, and do you know what this means? 
Verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciples, right? He's talking to the whole crowd now that's with the disciples. Whoever wants to be my disciples, again, verse 35, whoever wants to save their life and whoever loses their life, whosoever is invited, but make sure you count the cost of being a disciple, the cost of following Christ. It's a serious and demanding business, a life-changing business. So the first demand of discipleship is deny yourself is the one that modern psychology today and our therapeutic culture would get all up in arms about with you. We shouldn't deny yourself, some would say. We need to feed the self, do what feels good, express yourself no matter what. Lift up the autonomous subjective self. Don't deny it. Well, in some sense, there's, there's some good there too. We need to take care of ourselves and know ourselves and, and know our limits and our strengths and be able to defend ourselves. This isn't a call to self-hatred at all. In this sense, Jesus, too, had defended himself against Peter, who tried to define him and what he was all about. Jesus said, no, my, my path is one that leads to the cross. So he stood up for himself. Jesus stood up for his values, his beliefs, his calling, against his friends who were trying to tell him something else. Jesus said, no, this is who I am. And he wasn't necessarily nice about it either, the way we understand nice. Get behind me, Satan. But Jesus was not self-indulgent to the point of excess. He wasn't promoting himself above others, claiming rights and privileges and demanding that everyone gives him what he's got coming to him and that sort of thing. As it says in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. He submitted his personal, private, subjective self, his individualistic self-will, or ambitions to the will of the Father. Not my will be done, but your will be done. The first demand of discipleship is letting go of that earthly power, control over others, over things, not grasping for that power, kind of as the disciples were kind of doing, grasping for those positions of power. Whosoever will come, deny yourself. The second demand of discipleship is take up your cross. Again, in a Christian subculture, that might be interpreted as uh, enduring arthritis or fighting cancer or putting up with your spouse even. I'm bearing my cross, you know. Uh, There may be something to some of that, but when it comes to the demand of discipleship to take up your cross, I believe Jesus means his followers to be willing to join the ranks of the condemned, the despised, the doomed for the sake of Christ and for the gospel. It means to be ready to give up your own life. For, Jesus says in verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. And also verse 36, it says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? To be a true follower of Jesus is to be willing to follow him to the cross, not just to positions of glory and power and positions of strength, but to the cross. In other words, a serious demand of discipleship is a willingness to die for the gospel if need be. You will not hear a lot of that from an electronic preacher online or TV. And the third demand, of course, is to follow Christ. Follow his way. His word, his example, his teaching. 
You cannot save up enough stuff in this world to save your own soul. You cannot build up enough good arguments to outwit God. You cannot buy enough insurance to guarantee your place in heaven. So Jesus also tells the crowd and us this morning, if you're ashamed of me and my words now, then I'll be ashamed of you come judgment day when I come in my Father's glory with the holy angels. Now's the time to profess your faith. Now's the time to follow Christ. Follow him to the cross. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Those are the three demands of discipleship. The way of the cross. Confessing truth alone is not enough. The call from Jesus is to live the truth, even if it means your struggle and suffering here in this life, because you are following Christ, because you are living for the gospel. So how about you this morning? What hinders you from giving your life to God? All of it. What are you still holding on to? What are you keeping back from God? What are you hoping that God won't find out? Or or have you been amusing yourself to death with the pleasures of this world, maybe numbing your spirit with never-ending videos or video games? Have you been merely toying with Christ and the gospel? Isn't it time to take it seriously and accept the high demands of discipleship, to engage in self-discipline for the sake of Christ and the gospel? Of course, the demands don't come without a promise. Uh, The disciples and Peter, along with others themselves, saw the kingdom of God come in power before their very eyes, as the ending of our passage says. For example, Jesus is transfigured on the mountain in chapter 9 of Mark, and he's resurrected to life again. He ascends into heaven, and and he unleashes the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. For Christ and his followers, then and now, power and glory are understood differently than what the world knows. Surely this is the Son of God, died on the cross, who took the way of the cross. Real power and glory come by embracing the way of the cross, the way to the resurrection, a dying to self and a rising in Christ. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans, dying and rising, dying to self, dying to sin, rising to Christ, rising in Christ. We have the promise of God's presence and grace as we endure for the sake of Christ and the gospel in our lives, in our world today. Praise be to God. So may God bless you on your Lenten journey in this coming week too. Let's close in prayer. God of love and power, mercy and justice, we thank you for the cross. And forgive us for wearing them around our necks when we refuse to accept the serious demands of discipleship. In a culture where we are encouraged to feed our every thirst and pang of hunger, satisfy every lustful urge, indulge our senses at every turn, O Lord, teach us how to deny ourselves for your sake and for the sake of the gospel. When we're tempted to grasp power over others, insist on our own will being done no matter what, O Lord, teach us how to take up our cross and die to self that you may live through us and that your will would be done. And may we not look to the tough road ahead alone, but rather keep our eyes focused on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. 
In faith, as your disciples today, we lift this prayer in the name of Jesus, your Son, and our Lord. Amen.